Uh, the reading this morning is from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2, 6, and 7. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, everybody. So I wonder, as you think over the last year, 2023, which were the occasions that you particularly anticipated, that you really looked forward to? Was it um, a special birthday? Was it an anniversary of some kind or a family wedding? Was it something to do with um, work, a long-awaited holiday? or seeing someone you hadn't seen for a while, or getting some good news with relation to your health. And as you think back, and you think back at that time of anticipating whatever it was, what did you do to prepare? Did you, what did your mind dwell on? Did you allow yourself to think about it and imagine it? Did you turn it over in your thinking? Uh, or did you stop imagining it too much for fear that you might set yourself too high expectations and they would be disappointed? I was reminded about this as I was reflecting on this sermon, and I was reminded about um, a couple of years ago, Adrian and I cycled from Land's End to John O'Groats, and that was a really long-awaited and quite eagerly anticipated adventure. And I was thinking about that and thinking, yeah, for me, when I'm anticipating something, I do, I think about it a lot. I think about um, how it's going to un uh, unfold, how it's going to pan out, and I'm quite a planner, so for me, the planning is part of the anticipation thinking about the detail and working it through. And I imagined myself, you know, uh, into moments of that experience. You know, what would it feel like being on my bicycle for seven or eight hours a day? Uh, what would that moment when we arrived at the end point in Scotland, what would that feel like? Um, who were the people we might meet along the way? What were we going to eat? Uh, what would we feel like? How sore would our backsides actually be by the time we got there? So I think when we anticipate things, we think about them. We, we turn them over in our mind. Maybe we talk about it with other people. Or maybe, like Mary, the mother of Jesus, we have more of an internal anticipation. We keep it private. We keep it in our hearts. So as we've been talking about, we start Advent today. And Advent is, of course, the season of anticipation. And as Nick said just before the prayers, you know, we're anticipating the birth of Jesus, 
we're anticipating the arrival of Jesus into our lives, and we're anticipating the return of Jesus. And this passage from Isaiah steers us beautifully into this anticipation. It provides really powerful, really descriptive language about the king and the impact of the king and his reign. So what I'm going to do is share a little bit about the context of the passage and, and what Isaiah was writing about. And then we'll look specifically at those four titles for the king that he talks about. The titles which were subsequently drawn on by the early church and referred to Jesus. And which we've just heard in that wonderful piece of music from the Messiah. Wonderful counsellor, almighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace. So we'll look at how these titles reflected the expectations that Isaiah had, and we'll look at how these titles reflected the expectations that the Jews had of the Messiah, and we'll look at the hope that they bring us today. And it strikes me that if we want to focus our minds in the coming weeks in in this Advent season, then taking some time to dwell on these four titles may really be a useful thing to do. And it may be useful to, to, to hear and think about them today and consider which one of them feels most resonant to where you are at the moment that you might want to focus on in the coming weeks as we're anticipating the arrival of Jesus. And what does that anticipation mean in terms of our action? What do we do as we anticipate and we prepare? So let's start with the context of the passage. So this passage was written in the time of Isaiah, which was 8th century BC. And it's understood to be what's known as an accession oracle. So it was written um, to celebrate a new king. It might have been written at the time of the birth of this king, and the king in question was King Hezekiah. But most likely, it was celebrating his accession to the throne. So this was a celebration written for when he was actually uh, crowned. And he was the king of Judah, which was the southern tribe of Israel. And the liturgy emphasizes the hope and the anticipation that Hezekiah's accession to the throne would herald the end of the oppression of the Assyrians. <clears throat> so this was a century of being ruled by an oppressive foreign power. Um, and, and we read in this passage this hope and anticipation that that will come to an end, that there will be an end of injustice, in conflict, living in darkness but instead a move to living in the light. And it's interesting to think how powerfully those themes of living under an oppressive, occupying force were really relevant in the 8th century BC, really relevant to the 1st century Jews, really relevant in our world today, sadly. So Hezekiah, his predecessor was Ahaz, and Ahaz was not an honourable king. In contrast to Ahaz, Hezekiah is portrayed in the Old Testament as a king who wanted to keep close to God. Um, In the book of two kings, we read, he held fast to the Lord and did not stop following him. That didn't mean that he didn't make bad decisions, but he held fast to the Lord. And Hezekiah knew Isaiah, and at times of crisis, he would be in touch with the prophet and would be um, asking Isaiah to advocate for the people of Judah. He came to the throne when he was in his mid-20s, And in this wonderful passage, Isaiah captures the hopes that the nation has in him, the move from darkness to light. So these four titles for the king were then obviously picked up and applied as prophetic words to Jesus, um, in whom there was the same eager anticipation and hope of ushering in a new reign, 
a new type of way of being with justice and with peace. And in Semitic thought, often the name applied to somebody speaks more of their character and the nature of who they are, as well as just being a title for them. So let's look at these titles that Isaiah uses for the new king. Wonderful counsellor. In Handel's Messiah, he puts a comma in between those two. Wonderful counsellor. But actually, wonderful counsellor is the title. Uh, one phrase. And this refers to wise governance and rule. This is not counselling as we think about it now, but this is the provision of the wisdom and the choices that the king makes in his governance of the land. The expectation here is that the king will bring wisdom and justice and a rule that is not oppressive, a completely different quality of rule, a regular and extraordinary use of authority. Perhaps this is speaking to something radical that this new king will bring that hasn't been seen before, that isn't the conventional way of using power to dominate or oppress. Uh, maybe this heralds new possibilities for how power can be used that outstrip the way things have been done before. Perhaps this speaks of a leader who exercises governance in a provocative way because it's radical, because it's different. Perhaps this speaks of a leader who exercises governance in a servant leader way. What a rich anchor point for the expectations of the first century Jews, taken up by the early church, that the Messiah will bring freedom from oppression and freedom from the conventional use of power, a completely different way of using power, radical governance, wonderful counsellor. The second title for God is Mighty God, and this is about the power and the authority invested in the king. In the Hebrew context, the king was very much seen as being the conveyor of God's authority on earth. And so it's not surprising to see the king in this oracle called Mighty God, not trying to proclaim that the king was divine, but trying to proclaim that the king was the, the conveyor of the power of God. And perhaps the word mighty here speaks to Isaiah's expectation that this king will be bold, courageous, with the ability to protect and save his nation, to resist the threat and keep people safe. And isn't it interesting in the life of Jesus how we see him exercise the power of God over and over again. He exercises the power of God right here in the world. He, sets, uh, he, he forgives people. He heals people. He casts out the demons. He calms the storm. He walks on the waters. Um, in the ministry of Jesus, we see the mighty power of God being exercised uh, in reality, in, in making a practical difference to the lives of people. So this is not a theological abstraction about stating whether Jesus is divine or human, which obviously is relevant. But actually, it also speaks of what he did. He ushered in the power of God in his life. So wonderful counsellor, wise rule, wise governance, mighty God, exercising and drawing on the power of God in the here and now, everlasting father, the third title. This speaks to the ongoing love and care of the father. So we move now to look at the attributes of a father. And of course, this was written in a context which was a patriarchal society. 
So the father was the highest authority in the family, in the tribe and in the clan. So it's unsurprising this became a way in ancient Israel of referring to God and understanding and speaking of God. And we see that a lot in the Old Testament, the attribute and the imagery of, of God as a father. And the reference to everlasting God is maybe a comment on the quality of the relationship with the father, resilient, ongoing, steadfast, reliable over time, not contingent upon the circumstances in the world. So we, we see the emphasis with this third title, moving to the pastoral role of the king. The king is charged with uh, taking care of the people, the well-being of the state and the clan, taking care of the vulnerable, feeding the sheep, healing the sick. And don't we see the parallels in Jesus' life? You know, we know Jesus more as the son than the father, but clearly in the New Testament, he takes up the mantle of the pastoral care and love for people, caring for the sick, not leaving us orphans. So he shares the same function as the everlasting father. And then the final title, the Prince of Peace. And it's notable that in Hebrew, the word shalom, peace, is um, not just about the absence of warfare and hostilities, but it's also about the presence of well-being and the presence of prosperity. So this final title refers to a practice of justice which leads to peace and to living in peaceful society. And Isaiah's words here, rooted in the 8th century, speak of this deep yearning that, that, that um, the kingdom of Judah had for an alternative reality from the oppression they lived under, for a reality where society could live in peace and where their ruler would bring peace and justice. And don't we see the same longing in the backdrop of Jesus's society? A great longing for some transformative and radical uh, bringer of peace. But isn't it interesting how the peace he brought was different to what might have been expected? Uh, he wasn't a king who would deal with the political state of the nation. Jesus was a king who dealt with the human state of the nation. He didn't overthrow the Romans to bring political peace, but he deeply challenged the paradigms and the social norms in order to bring peace. Jesus' model was that peace requires the ability to forgive, the readiness to share generously, ignoring and violating any stratification which comes from class and class expectations, attentiveness to the vulnerable, humility. These are the attributes of a peaceful kingdom led by Jesus, the Prince of Peace. So we have wise counselor, the leadership of justice and the leadership of wisdom. We have mighty God, the exercise of the power of God in this world. We have everlasting father, the fatherly pastoral love and care, and we have the bringer of peace, peace and, and peaceful lives. So we see that this passage is really rich in expectation, both in the uh, 8th century BC and in the 1st century. Isaiah's expectations. And isn't it interesting? Isaiah's expectations in the 8th century were really, I mean, they were wonderful. They were very, the words he uses are very um, expressive and powerful. But isn't it interesting how what he wrote 
became expanded and enlarged beyond anything that Isaiah himself might have realized. Um, you know, it, it, the, the expectation and the anticipation he had were blown into something much bigger with the arrival of Jesus. And um, isn't it interesting how with the first century in the early church and the Jews, their expectation of the Messiah wasn't that blown up and enlarged bigger than they could have imagined? Wasn't the impact of Jesus so much bigger than they expected of what the Messiah would bring? And I wonder for us in the 21st century, we have anticipations, we have expectations about what a life with Jesus and in the kingdom of God is like. And I wonder if we are prepared for our expectations to be blown up and enlarged beyond anything we could imagine. Or do we hold our way of seeing what Jesus does in the world and what he does in our lives? Do we hold it in a box and think that we've got it, we know it, like this is the truth, it looks like this? Or do we hold it in a way that might allow it to be just blown up beyond more than we could imagine? So back to our anticipating. Sometimes when we anticipate, we think about it, we dream about it, we talk about it. And sometimes when we anticipate, we do something about it. We prepare, we get ourselves ready. And in the context of my cycle ride, we did loads of preparing. We spent a whole year on our bicycles before we went on our big uh, cycle. And what was interesting about that is that we had a whole series of wonderful and amazing adventures that weren't the adventure we were anticipating, but that were in the lead up to it. Um, the anticipation led to the experiences that, that informed the ultimate thing we were expecting. And so what do we do in this season of anticipation, in terms of our anticipation of Jesus? And I was thinking about whether these four titles give us a little bit of a clue as to what we might do when we prepare. Whether our role might be in each of these four domains to consider how do we play our part in ushering those characteristics into the world today. <clears throat> it could be that some of us have leadership roles where the choices, the wise choices we make in how we influence and govern in our domains is something we can think about. It could be that some of us have family and community contexts where being the bringer of peace is incredibly important, to be the people who find the way through to peace. So how can we prepare for what we anticipate by bringing some of these characteristics of the person we love into the world today? Perhaps one of these particularly resonates for you. Perhaps you can pick one for your theme this Advent. Uh, perhaps we can challenge ourselves to not only anticipate, but to anticipate in a way which allows the possibility that we'll be surprised and that what we see is larger than what we expect. And perhaps we can anticipate in the way that leads us into different action uh, in our daily lives.